Hi, I'm Gala Avery, and welcome to Earwolf Presents, featuring an episode of the Video Archives podcast with Quentin Tarantino and Roger Avery. Each week, Earwolf Presents brings you just one episode from the Earwolf universe of podcasts. And today, you'll hear our first episode, where Quentin and Roger discuss Darkstar and Cocaine Cowboys. This episode is an awesome entry point into our podcast, mostly because Quentin and Roger talk about the real history of video archives and their relationship. And also, these movies are awesome. If you liked this episode, be sure to subscribe to the Video Archives podcast on Apple, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. On this episode of the Video Archives podcast, join Roger and Quentin as they revisit one of Roger's favorite films, the 1974 cult classic Dark Star. Originally created by John Carpenter and Dan O'Bannon as a student film, buckle up for a ride amongst the stars as we follow a group of scientists on a mission to destroy unstable stellar bodies. Listen as Quentin and Roger discuss changing opinions from opening day, break down the film and discuss the impact that it's had on future movies in this genre, and laugh about a beach ball alien. Next, we'll return to 1979 with Uli Lamel's cult film Cocaine Cowboys. A rock band is on the brink of superstardom. All that stands in the way is a lost bag of cocaine worth $2 million. Starring Jack Palance, Tom Sullivan, Susanna Love, and Andy Warhol. This film benefits greatly from Quentin and Rogers' historical insights as they reveal the truth behind the scenes. Andy Warhol's influences, the Trudeau connection, and how this true story made it onto the big screen. What real history is encoded in this film? Find out now on the Video Archives podcast. Here's Quentin and Roger. You're listening to the Video Archives podcast, starring former employee of Video Archives, Quentin Tarantino, with my co-host, co-colleague behind the counter of Video Archives, co-writer of the Oscar-winning Pulp Fiction, and in this current endeavor, Sancho Panza to my (laughs) windmill-tilting Don Quixote, Roger Roberts Avery. That's me. And uh, yeah. Yeah, I was thinking about video archives today and obviously because we're in this podcast and I, yeah. you know, as I was driving in and I was thinking about like when it started and how it started. Which started in Manhattan Beach, California yeah. on 11822 North Sepulveda Boulevard. Yeah. Archives began because uh, when I was a kid, my my friend, our friend, mm-hmm. uh, Scott McGill, uh, his dad had a store called Video Outtakes. Like the original title, I think, was Video Takeout. Mm-hmm. But then there was another Video Takeout uh-huh. somewhere. Something, and so, so he just and, reversed it. And this is like 1978, 1979. Mm-hmm. So this is, this is like when the very first of the commercial videos started being released. This is in the days when uh, we still rented beta yeah, tapes, uh-huh. beta tapes. Like, for instance, Disney, Buena Vista. Mm-hmm. You you could not buy their tapes to rent. You yeah. had to rent the tapes from Buena Vista mm-hmm. and then, you know, rent them out to customers. You mm-hmm. The store never owned the tape. And yeah. so they were still discovering what the model for home video and was. Most of them were like Eyelid Artists, uh, home videos, and magnetic home videos. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Exactly. So um, there was a partnership at that store. It was between Dean, who was Scott's dad, and this guy, Lance Lawson. Mm-hmm. And who was kind of the videophile who owned all the cool titles at Outtakes. Uh, I worked at the store for a number of years, and that's when you started walking in. Yeah. And uh, you had been perusing other stores in the area, and you landed there. Well, and- I, had a, I had a whole thing back then where it was uh, wherever I was at, it didn't matter. I mean, any town, any city that I was at, if I was driving around or, or just walking around or something, 
If I saw a mom and pop video store, or actually if I saw any video store, um, I would just go in. I would just go in to see what they had because I was always wanted to know what was available out there and what I could possibly get. I would spend two hours in the store seeing everything they had, but then like, you know, you'd find two or three videos that nobody else had. And so I always did that. And there was some reason why I was in Redondo Beach without a car. Yeah, I was just walking down PCH and then, oh, okay, here's another store, like a mom and pop store. I've never been in before. Let's just see. And I'm just used to the mom and pops knowing fuck all about movies. Right? Yeah. You know, it's just, this was an investment for them. So I uh, walked in the store and lo and behold, there's Lance Lawson, who's at that time in my life, knew more about movies than any living person I had ever met. I was always the only person who knew that much about movies. But Lance was like this mentor, uh, you know, hippie guy in the... Uh, yeah, the uh, beatnik almost. Yeah, hippie guy from the uh, in the early 80s, uh, um, you know. And so I would like come by and they had all this stuff that nobody else had. And I would go and, uh, 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 and shoot the shit with him. He would do things for us, like he would get us Filmex tickets. Mm -hmm. He would uh, take us to Douglas Trumbull's show scan when it was yeah. first invented. He would do all sorts of great things for, for like our little community of guys. Well, the thing is, Lance was always doing stuff like that. I remember you, he knew I was really into rockabilly and that was when the Everly Brothers got back together again. And he took me to the Greek theater to see the Everly Brothers. I couldn't have afforded those tickets normally. Nor would it even ever occur to me to try to get tickets to the Greek theater to go see the Everly Brothers. He took me uh, down in uh, the Amundsen to see Nicholas Nickleby when it came to Los Angeles, that whatever that was, that five-hour version of, of Nicholas Nickleby. He introduced us to things and events more sophisticated than the things that we normally gravitated towards. My whole introduction to video outtakes and Lance was just, you know, randomly stopping into video outtakes, meeting Lance and like having a two hour conversation with him. And whenever I found myself in Redondo Beach, stopping by and, you know, talking to him again. Then about a year and a half later or something, I dropped by and I never saw Lance there. Yeah. It was usually Dean. But then there was this young kid there, Scott McGill, mm -hmm. a mutual friend of ours. I met him. He was the, uh, the, uh, the son of the owner. And then so I started having nice conversations with him. And then at one point, he was, you know, I was, I was about 22 and he was about 17. And so um, one day I come in there and I'm talking to Scott and I go, hey, whatever happened to that Lance guy? I kept coming by and, you know, he doesn't, I guess he doesn't work. And they go, oh, no, he started his own store. He did. Yeah, yeah. It's just down the street on Sepulveda Boulevard in Manhattan Beach, video, video archives. So that's how I knew about video archives. And so Lance started Video Archives, and I went with him as sort of a new, fresh uh, kind of experience. I wrote the computer software for the mm -hmm. inventory system on an Atari 800 mm -hmm. computer using floppy disks. You probably remember yeah. mm -hmm. actually operating that thing and yeah, constantly yeah. having to swap out like floppy disks. And we didn't have a cash register for four years. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> it was a really like mom and pop, mm -hmm. you know, uh, place where we were given complete title and license to run the place. Even though it had the the brick and mortar and the business model of a mom and pop video store, it was closer to an underground newspaper. Totally. That we were we were doing. Not not a fanzine, an official newspaper that required print, that required yeah. us to get our shit together, to you know, to pay bills and do all that stuff. Um and the guys was, it was a bunch of video cassettes that uh, the people of Manhattan Beach could come in there and rent. But it was the environment that we offered and the people that the store attracted. 
and the people in Manhattan Beach that it attracted. And even, and it wasn't just like, oh, the only people that came there were um, uh, uh, film geeks like us. No, that's actually absolutely not the case. 80% of the people were just regular, uh, well-to-do families families that, that lived in the neighborhood. So they weren't like us, but they liked that the people running the video store were like us. They were like, "Hey, let's go down with the crazy movie guys." Yeah, and you know, and then let's ask them what they what they suggest. And we became a topic of conversation all over Manhattan Beach because we had this cool store, just like the way and you know actually what it was really like. I'll, okay, what it was exactly like is like the real cool used record store in town. Yeah. Except it just, it was a video store with all the, you know, with all the music heads and the wannabe musicians and uh, archivists, you yeah. know, that work there. And, and know the entire collection. The premise of this show, one of the things that me and Roger did working at the video store is uh, along with putting shelves, renting out, uh, uh, setting up new customers, which was always the biggest pain in the ass, uh, uh, renting out video cassettes, and putting stuff back up on shelves and recommending uh, uh, films to people was we uh, um, uh, talked about movies all day. We watched movies all day. We talked about movies all day. Customers came in just to talk with us. We debated and argued about films all day. We saw everything that was out there. And it was just this place where we could talk about movies and basically not have to work for a living. My idea is to recreate that. And uh, for... uh, this podcast. Now, the thing is, when Video Archives went out of business, I bought the collection. So I have all the video cassettes from Video Archives, and we're sitting in a room that looks almost like an obsessive shrine to Video Archives, but it's simply a place for me to put the videos. It's like a, maus- a mausoleum would be <laughs> it's more just a, it, it, It's just a really groovy storeroom, all right? It's it's not this fetishistic object that yeah. it probably appears. Yeah, pl- well, understand, even to me, who spent like years and years, like a decade more of uh, my life, mm-hmm. like handling all of these tapes yeah. every single day, you know, putting mm-hmm. them in and yeah. out of the system mm-hmm. and like touching them every day and then not seeing them for, you know, 25 years, the majority of my yeah, life. Yeah, right. And then coming back and the shelves are still the same. Yeah, it's the same shelves. But and, well, because they fit. All yeah. right. <laughs> and I come back in and lo and behold, it's the it's the store. It's yeah. the store. Now, I purchased all the laser discs. Yeah, you have the laser discs. Back then, so I... But you keep reminding us. Well, <laughs> it was a, it, Avery's folly. <laughs> it was a maybe a fool's errand. I couldn't afford the whole My video cassettes are hanging in there far better than your laser discs. I just want to say. Yeah, my laser discs have succumbed mostly to laser rot. At least a good 25, 30% of the collection, the glue that holds the platens together, the two platters, because the laser discs have two sides you actually it's like a dvd that you have to flip Mm -hmm. and uh the glue tends to erode the optical over the course of decades (laughs) yeah sometimes over the course of months yeah right actually was the was the case and so Mm -hmm. i have many many discs where i can only Mm -hmm. play half of it well the thing is now for the for the episode is i i have all the video archives uh videos and then when another magnificent video store in uh L.A. County called uh, Eddie Brant's. When they went out of business, I got their inventory. Yeah, they were great. So the format of the show that we'll be dealing with uh, from episode to episode, we're going to do a little different on tonight's episode. We're just going to go with uh, two films. But normally, the way it's going to work is we're going to pick three movies from the Video Archives collection that I, I pull from the shelves that we're going to discuss. The idea usually 
is the first two movies sort of work to some degree as a double feature. They can be completely opposite to each other, but they kind of work as a, if any of the films will be known, more known, it'll be the first two. Mm-hmm. But then the idea for the third one is like that third film that plays at a drive-in triple feature, a very, very obscure video cassette, either usually either exploitation-y or very obscure in like in a foreign sense or just in any, just obscurity, all right? Not the kind of movies that when you found them at a video store, you had no fucking idea what this is. Okay, maybe Jack Palance is in it. That's interesting. Maybe Stuart Whitman is in it. Okay, that's interesting. Carol Baker's in it. Okay, maybe that's interesting. Okay, I don't know what the fuck Demonoid is. I'm going to give it a shot. (laughs) And you take it home and you have this big surprise. And and that was actually part of the joy of, of going to a video store and and selecting those three tapes. And there was always that one weird one. Okay, I'll throw that one in too. And those were some of the discoveries that you remembered from the 80s. So that's our idea for a format for the show. But the point is here, we're watching the video cassettes from the collection. It's not, we're now watching the Blu-rays. We're not watching some weird director's cut. We're not watching- It's not on YouTube. No, it's just, and if we don't have the video cassette they can't be counted as a movie. Yeah, It has, it has to, to be from the collection. It has to be in our, our inventory. And, and also, because we're all about the home video, physical media, rah-rah, everything yeah, the, of, the, of the, that The aspect. fetishism of tactile objects. Uh, of that <laughs> is, you know, it is about, along with the movie, it's about the video, it's about the transfer, was it in the SP mode, was it in the EP mode, was Who it was the, the video S- distributor? SLP mode. Uh, if a film is from Paragon Home Video, we will go off for a while talking about the glories of Paragon Home Video. And then we'll get around to the title that we're talking about. Okay, so with no further ado, Roger, why don't you start it off? Uh, we're going to start off with uh, really one of my favorite movies, absolutely one of my favorite comedies, absolutely one of my favorite science fiction films, absolutely one of my favorite cult films, which actually was pulled out of the cult section mm-hmm. of uh, archives. I actually, at first, had trouble actually, finding it. Actually, it. it was in the science fiction section. No, actually, it was in the cult section, mm-hmm. at least in the inventory. It was held in the cult okay, section. Uh-huh. That's why I had trouble finding it. I uh-huh. was like looking it up in my thing. And I was like, it's not in the comedy. Oh, mm-hmm. my God, it's not in the uh, I think science my, fiction. in my day, we more- It should have been in the sci- yeah. science fiction. Yeah. I mean, it, it's, it's rents more when it was in the science fiction. If you had two copies, you would put one in the cult. <laughs> <and one. laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's John Carpenter and Dan O'Bannon's- Magnificent uh, science fiction comedy, Dark Star. Brought to you by? Brought to you by United Home Video. In it, one of the most beautiful, like kind of the plastic boxes that no, really protected great, the great tape. It's large the, size, large no, size clamshell. No paper, you know, good like vinyl with a plastic sheeting around it. And actually the most witty of, of all the covers I've seen of it, the wittiest yeah, cover. The late, it's a later cover because mm-hmm. they, early on they had trouble selling the movie. Yeah. People thought it was a serious film. And yeah. so this is the... The, the comedy cover. Yeah, the, the floating toilet paper in space gives you a clue. <laughs> and I will now give a plot synopsis of the film by reading the back of the United Home Video video box. Always the best way to get a glean on the film. Right on. In the mid-21st century, mankind has reached a point in its technological advances to enable colonization of the far reaches of the universe. Darkstar is a futuristic scout ship traveling far in advance of colony ships. Armed with exponential thermostellar bombs, it prowls the unstable planets. One obstacle that its crew members did not count on 
one of the ship's thinking and talking bombs is lodged in the bay, threatening to destroy the entire ship and crew. Exclamation. John Halloween Carpenter and Dan Alien O'Bannon combine their writing, creative, and technical talents to bring you this thrilling and extraordinary science fiction parody. That's the only parody. The word parody is the only clue that the film is a comedy. Yeah. 91 minutes, 1971, color, and the tape number in the science fiction section is 199. That is an early, early tape. Dark Star started off as a student film that was being done at USC, directed by John Carpenter, and pretty much done in collaboration with a fellow uh, student, Dan O'Bannon, who wrote the script with Carpenter, was the production designer, did all the special effects, edited the movie, and is the lead of the film. Yeah. So it truly, I mean, in every way, shape, and form, it can be called a Carpenter-Dan O'Bannon film. It is a, a complete joint effort of these two men together. The only time they will ever work together. And it's understandable, but also sad at, yeah, the, exact, it, it, at, at, at the same time, because it was a magnificent collaboration. Roger... Talk I, to us about Dark Star. I saw this movie in 1974 on mm-hmm. its uh, an initial release. Uh-huh. So when it came out in theaters, I was in Palo Alto at the time, and it played, at, I mean, probably for the Stanford. Uh, I, I wasn't a Stanford student. My mm-hmm. family was living in the in the Menlo Park How area. old were you then? Like 12? Yeah, it was like nine, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 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 uh, <laughs> I was yeah. like nine years mm-hmm. old. Yeah, and it was rated G, and so, and it's a science fiction movie. Yeah. And so I went and saw it, and- my cousins went and took me to see it and I had like a bunch of hippie cousins. Uh And so I immediately, I think because of them understood the movie because Mm -hmm. they were totally dialed into counterculture. This movie is perfectly aligned with what would become sort of how I view my sense of humor and my (laughs) perspective on Mm -hmm. the world. And I've since learned it's really, it's Dan O'Bannon. Yeah. That is, you know, I mean, listen, this movie is, uh, it's very well directed, but it's, I mean, Dan O'Bannon is such a personality in this movie because he's actually a physical presence yeah. within the film. And there's so much charm associated to his perspective mm-hmm. of the universe, which is... And anti-charm. Of, yeah, which is anti-charm, <laughs> which is like Dan O'Bannon was one of the very first guys who kind of figured out this concept of a used universe where there was like truckers and oil derrick workers and miners and stuff like that in space yeah, a lower class working class all right inside yeah. of space travel yeah and then not know, everybody like the enterprise <laughs> and to me this was like a massively successful comedy release like mm-hmm. i was laughing when i saw it. everybody around me was laughing years later i, I kind of heard and actually from o'bannon that People didn't get the movie Mm -hmm. the way I did Mm -hmm. or the way people went expecting, I think based on the poster, more 2001. It was around 1989 or so when I was in college that I went hardcore Mm -hmm. on Dark Star. And I started watching it like all the time. Oh, great. And I started uh, like, frankly, like just studying Dan Mm O'Bannon's kind of humor, Mm -hmm. his kind of whack version of uh, i mean he's called it waiting for godot i did waiting for godot as, when i was in theater in high school uh-huh. and i don't think of waiting for godot as anything like dark right. star <laughs> like, now, okay, yeah, waiting we, for we, godot we, is completely abstract to me dark star is like like mm-hmm. not abstract at all it's comedy well i mean it's like, <laughs> i mean one of the things that was interesting and i'll talk about when i talk about the film watching it with you 
I saw it once when it came out and I hadn't seen it since. So it was funny watching it with, with you because I remember even from like from being a little kid, I remember different elements of it. But I was really kind of seeing it for the first time with the exception of these moments. When we remember. watched it Yeah, together. when we watched it together. Yeah. But I could tell you had seen it like 10 times. I mean, you're, you're responding to it like- I'm anticipating the laughs that I'm no. about to make. Yeah, no, no, exactly. <laughs> no, you were watching the way we would watch Evil Dead 2 with somebody sure. who's never seen Evil Dead 2 before. Yeah, exactly, mm-hmm. exactly. I mean, part of what I love about Dark Star is one that it's not perfect. Mm-hmm. I really like the imperfections in cinema. I like- to see the handmade quality of things. Mm -hmm. And Dark Star is so handmade that it almost looks like a graphic novel Mm -hmm. to the extent that I think some people might look at it and think it just looks like kind of cheap, bad uh, effects. But to me- I don't think that. I I don't, yeah, I I don't think that at all. Mm -hmm. Also, as I I started becoming a filmmaker, Mm And, tr- and which was around the same time, like that we're talking about the, you know, 89. I mean, it was long before then I was making super eight movies mm-hmm. and we were doing all yeah. sorts of stuff together mm-hmm. and writing yeah. and everything in those early days at um, video archives. But when I seriously started trying to like um, approach being a filmmaker, I really kind of looked to a lot of these handmade movies yeah, yeah. that, you know, that I admired so deeply mm-hmm. And, you know, and there's a number of them that I can point at. And yeah, but Dark Star really is a shining jewel amongst that. It is so much so because it was a student film, mm-hmm. because it existed as one thing and they expanded it. And, you know, the Scorsese film is like the only other one that I can think of offhand. Oh, yeah. That uh-huh. It was like a... Um, you know, like who's student, that knocking on my door? Who's that knocking yeah. at my door? Mm-hmm. You know, it's like a, a student film. And ah, to some degree, it's how you can say the same thing about greetings, same thing about hi mom. Well, and frankly, we mm-hmm. could say the same thing about Reservoir Dogs. Yeah, yeah. It, you know, mm-hmm. if we uh, if we were to go there, that one of the things about Reservoir Dogs is we were talking about making that originally yeah, as a uh-huh. very handmade kind of film, like mm-hmm. motorcycle garage that a friend owned. Uh, yeah, probably a muffler shop. Is where yeah, it was like a muffler shot. shop. Yeah, 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 it was that muffler shop. Because yeah, but it's not though. Because we actually got a budget and we yeah, were no, able you to, did it for and real. We had, and we you had trucks it. and shit you like that, been, which we never would have had if we were piecing every, it together on weekends. Every, but the, <laughs> I think the point is though that you were going to make that movie no matter what. Oh, that's for sure. No matter what, that movie was going to get made. Mm-hmm. You know, like I look at movies in as two kind of things. I look at them as plot and story. Mm-hmm. And plot, people will go to see a movie once Mm -hmm. for the plot. It's just the basic events that occur that move everything along. Story is everything that that isn't the plot, that you hang on the plot. Mm -hmm. It's the lighting. It's the theme. It's the... You know, the layers of the onion that are even Mm -hmm. unspoken. You know, uh, uh, it's it's all sorts of other elements. The screenplay, you can tell it's written by people who want... First of all, they saw 2001 mm-hmm. and they just went crazy. They were kids when they saw 2001 mm-hmm. or, or, or teens when they saw mm-hmm. 2001 and were like, and it made an impression on it. And 2001 is about technology that's yeah. breaking. Also at the same time, I think there's, this seems to be an answer to 2001, an anti-2001. It's, it's 2001 it, 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 as it, it, made as Dr. Strangelove. Yeah. You know, it's a kind of systems failing. And Kubrick, all of his movies no, are about I systems think that, that I think fail. there's also a criticism of, of 2001 a, a criticism of the suits, a criticism yeah, sure. of uh, of the 60s, uh, middle age, middle classness, a, a criticism of the antiseptic quality of, of the lack of humanity that is supposedly all part of space travel in movies. This is bringing life and piss and shit and cum into the space world. <laughs> Literally, in the case of the toilet paper, which is an issue in the movie. And it's witty. It's incredibly witty. 
It's making the same, like there's one joke in two, mm-hmm. supposedly in 2001, which is mm-hmm. the zero gravity toilet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he's like reading the instructions mm-hmm. for it. Like one of the final images in this is the zero gravity toilet floating by. Yeah, it yeah, survived right, yeah, yeah. the explosion. <laughs> <laughs> so this pinback character that's played by Dan O'Bannon, he's actually this guy, Bill Frug, mm-hmm. who scored apparently like a 74 or something. Mm-hmm. You're supposed to get like 700 mm-hmm. to be an astronaut. Yeah. He scored 74. He's just a maintenance worker. Yeah, he's like a, the loading dock, right? He's yeah. literally the loading dock. <laughs> I've completely forgot he, about this aspect when I watched the movie again. <laughs> where I went, what? Pinback isn't pinback? Yeah, he's not even pinback. He's and none of them really care about this. But what's interesting about that is he seems to be the one who cares the most yeah. about everything. Like and I and I just love Dan O'Bannon's voice. So like when he says something like, you know, that's the light to the healing manifold. Yeah. Right. <laughs> that's dangerous. <laughs> you know, he just has such a um he's concerned about things because mm-hmm. he knows the workings of well, the Well, in ship. a strange way, everybody else has just gotten disillusioned. Yeah. Or spaced out, like the guy who's just basically taking bong hits, all right, in the... Uh, uh, well, they're, they're actually at various levels yeah, of yeah, spaced out from, yeah, the, uh-huh. from the captain who's mm-hmm. like, hello? hello? Yeah, yeah. Like he's in a stasis. Well, he's dead. He's in a, <laughs> but he's in a kind of weird state. like, why don't you visit me more often? Yeah, but he's dead! He's <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> not spaced it, out, he's dead! <laughs> well, that's a kind of spaced out. That's the ultimate spaced out. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but in a weird way, it, it's like pinback is the one who is like grown into his character. He's grown into his responsibilities while everyone else is forgetting theirs. Yeah, yeah. And so they, when it, it finally came time for them to to make the movie and mm. when they got some extra money and I don't, I don't know how much they made the student film for versus how much money uh, they were getting. I think I, since they paid for the movie themselves, I'm sure it wasn't more than $6,000 or something like that. But it's always just mentioned in the entire budget, which was 40000 Yeah. They, which is just mind-blowing. Yeah, it, it really is... Mm. Uh, hard to wrap your head around but Mm -hmm. at the same time when everything's handmade you're also you're getting super talented people for nothing you're Mm -hmm. getting ron cobb yeah who Mm -hmm. uh, at the time i just knew him as a as a cartoonist well he was he was just a cartoonist for the uh, la free press yeah yeah he was like one. he'll later go on to be the production designer on conan the barbarian yeah and uh designed all the ships for alien i've seen the sketches that ron cobb did of dark star Mm -hmm. and they are so beautiful Mm -hmm. like they are so professional but dan o'bannon did the special effects yeah. He is the one responsible for the special effects. He marshaled all those talents. Oh, that, for sure. This is his movie when it comes to special effects. I didn't respect or know Dan O'Bannon well enough. I didn't know his mm-hmm. contribution. Yeah. Not enough of it was available. There was no internet. I was, the, yeah, I was not a, look, there, there was, was a name I knew. I was not a huge fan of Dan O'Bannon. I always liked everybody else he collaborated he, with more than him. You know, and frankly, when he did Return of the Living Dead, I was such a George Romero fan that it became very easy for me to marginalize him a little bit. Yeah. And How dare you make the next yeah. uh, Night of Living Dead sequel the same year that George Romero is doing his sacrilege. Now, <laughs> with the benefit of time and perspective and also information, like having access yeah. to it and being able to read about Dan O'Bannon and being able to read what happened to him. And to, I talked to Jodorowsky about mm-hmm. him. Everything I've learned about him I feel so bad forever, ever maligning him in my mind or, or not even maligning him, just like uh, soft peddling him. I feel like I feel I the so sa- identify I, with him now. Like I feel the same. I feel the same way you do, except I didn't come to it till this week. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I've enjoyed not liking him and I've enjoyed slagging him off. And now I now I feel guilty. Well, when I when when we popped it in and watched it together now, I hadn't seen Dark Star maybe for um a couple a couple of years at least and then we watched it 
together. Mm-hmm. And, you know, like whenever you watch a movie with somebody else, uh, you're seeing it through their eyes. Yeah, yeah. And um, I don't think we had seen it. Like this may have, I may have popped this in at the store because I can guarantee the week that this came out, I was uh, pushing it. And mm-hmm. if it was in the store, I was playing it. Yeah. I'm sure of it. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure if you put it on when I was in, like, oh God, Dark Star. Yeah, do, yeah. Do you have to? Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever. <laughs> but anyhow, I I treasure the film now. Mm-hmm. I I look at Dan O'Bannon and I understand his contribution and I appreciate it because I identify with it. I identify with that. Hey, let's make this movie. Let's do whatever we can to make the impossible possible. I think my first exposure to Dark Star was uh, through Starlog magazine and uh, reading it there, seeing all the the kind of handmade production art and everything by Ron Cobb and what these guys were doing and that this was a student film. Well, and also, you know, when Carpenter does Halloween, you know, he's going to be written about in every genre magazine in the world. And they're mm-hmm. all going to have a section at the beginning of the piece that goes through the history of Dark Star and then goes on to Assault and Precinct 13 before it gets to Halloween. Now, let me ask you, when they were talking about Dark Star, when in, right, immediately following Halloween, mm-hmm. was it sort of like, oh, this is his fear and desire or maybe no, no, Killer's no, 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 Kiss? No, it's, or, no. or was this like Dark it's, Star? Yeah, it was considered an absolute cult film classic, but, you know, by 78. Yeah, for sure. It's yeah. absolutely a cult film classic. Uh, uh, he's the one talking it down more than anything else. You know, he even said recently to the effect, well, I... I don't really respond to it because I see its student film origins. I see very little student film origins. To me, it just looks like a good science fiction movie. I know some of the effects have been done cheaply. I wouldn't know that from just necessarily watching it. I don't think, hey, look, look, I see cleverness going on. You would spend a lot of money to try to get that look now. Yeah, I see (laughs) cleverness up the wazoo, but I don't think, oh, look at, isn't this charm? It's, it's full of charm. It's, it's, it, it exists on charm. That's all it is, is charm. But there's also craftsmanship there. I don't see, oh, look at these cool kids that did this really neat thing with the little bit they had, especially when I was a kid and I saw it, I didn't like it. And I'll go into that in a second, but it looked like a real science fiction movie. I had no question about the look of it, the special effects, the spaceship, the spaceship sets. I mean, everything was, I mean, I could watch it today having made movies and I would not know it was made for 40,000. I would never, I never would have guessed. I would not know anything about the student film origin of it. I would not, it's just a fucking legitimate piece of work in every way, shape or form. Well, I'm going to presume that what Carpenter is talking about is that when you make a movie, it becomes the experience of making the film yeah. and you end up associating all the good or bad that nobody else ever knows or sees. Mm-hmm. And if you've, you know, had a rough experience on something or been screwed over by a producer or mm-hmm. whatever has occurred or, well, or, look, well, he looks at it and goes, okay, those are ice trays. <laughs> Those are ice cube trays that I'm shining light through. So he can only see the ice cube trays. Yeah. He can only see the muffin tins. I love the ice cube trays. Me too. To me, me too. the ice cube trays show innovation. Yeah. And and resourcefulness that mm-hmm. I didn't really see again in a science fiction movie until I think it was um, was it Battle Beyond the Stars. Yeah, 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 yeah. Where they were really like, yeah. well, when James Cameron is yeah. like going and buying the styrofoam, uh, a quarter pounder with cheese, yeah. and Big Mac, uh, 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 just to have the the styrofoam containers, the styrofoam <laughs> containers, and like you know, putting them all over the walls, yeah, and painting them and putting them all over the walls, yeah, it was super innovation. Okay, so now I'm going to tell you my history with Dark Star, where I saw it in '74, uh, 
when it came out, I saw Marina Del Rey, Marina Del Rey uh, UA. I hated it in 74 when I saw it. So you were nine, I was probably 11. Mm-hmm. I hated it. And I'll tell you why I hated it is because I, only, I knew fuck all about it other than uh, the TV spots that Jack Harris had uh, blanketed afternoon television with. Uh, so I saw the t- TV spots a bunch of times and looked like a really groovy space movie to me. I thought, oh, wow, I can't wait to see this. And so that weekend came about and I went and saw it. Okay, so this is, to say the least, this is before Star Wars. Okay, so what did I want? <laughs> oh, well, I will say that I do think the TV spots were misleading. Okay, the TV yeah. spots- make The whole you, ad campaign was misleading. Yeah, makes you think that it's like a Star Trek-y uh, uh, Buck Rogers yeah. kind of thing. Not all the dare doing, but it just looks like a real space movie. So like- for instance, uh, they show uh, the plasma rifle going off. Yeah, they yeah, show yeah. like all the and all this, the moments that yeah, you uh, could uh, sell to make it and, look like. And that. they don't show you any. They don't give you a hint of the counterculture aspect of it, and they don't give you a the Gonzo anti-establishment quality of it. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so I'm thinking it's just a straight ahead science fiction movie, and I have if the movie they had played had been <laughs> Luigi Cosi's Star Crash. Yeah, I would have thought, okay, this is it, man. Oh, this is exactly what I wanted to see. Star. If I had seen Star Crash when I went and saw Dark Star, I would have been completely satisfied. Yeah. That would have been exactly what I wanted. That would have been exactly what the TV spot asked for. That that's that's what I I wanted to see Star Crash way before it was ever made. When I went and see Dark Star, so what I ended up seeing, I fucking hated, and it was very funny watching the movie. Now with a completely different point of view, because I've always said, oh, I hate Dark Star. I hate Dark Star. Um, Become fashionable to say it. And it was interesting watching it now, remembering how much I hated it, because everything that I love about the movie now is what irritated the shit out of me at 11. I hated the idea that the crew were these dirty fucking hippie guys, all right? By 74, See, those as guys- a little boy, I was so over the fucking hippie thing, all right? I was so over my babysitter's boyfriends, all right? I was so over seeing those people, the the the, the older, older sons of my mom's friends. I was so over that whole thing. My cousins, Jeff and David, <laughs> were those guys. Yeah. So I got taken to the movie by those guys. Okay, yeah. <laughs> so- and not only that, this was the first time I had seen by this point in time, I had seen bad actors before. <laughs> this was the first time I went to a movie and bought a ticket where, oh, I'm sitting here watching the movie thinking, oh, oh, these guys aren't bad actors. They're not even actors. <laughs> these are amateur actors. Everything about them just seemed unprofessional. Everything about them seemed unlike actors. And they're playing people you hate. Yeah, the counterculture stuff just uh, just, just bummed me out. Mm-hmm. Uh, like when they went to, like one of the biggest laughs is when they go to their uh, barracks mm-hmm. and it's all like the, the porno magazines on the wall and all the, the hippie kind of uh, thing. Like, oh God, I just, oh, I, 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 it's like I repelled from all the anti-establishment aspect of it. I repelled about the fact that they looked like hippies. I, I did not like the, uh, uh, the captain. I thought, oh, no way is this guy the captain of the, uh, <laughs> of, 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 of the ship. When the beach ball alien shows up, okay, being, being, okay, also, I'm 11. So it's right at that time you start getting 
intolerant about stuff. Oh, it's so stupid. Oh, oh God, jeez. Oh, that's so stupid. Oh, so dumb. It's so stupid. It's so stupid. <laughs> and everything, you know, the, the, the surfing at the end down to the play. Oh, it's so stupid. This is so stupid. Uh, all right. Everything I thought was just so dumb. I will admit that as time went on, I started responding to Pinback to some degree. But you have to understand, I'm watching the movie. I'm the only little boy there. Everybody else is like a, could be in the fucking movie. All right. They're all like hippie kind of anti-establishment, you know, teenagers or guys in their 20s watching the movie. They all get it. They all get it. And they all love it. And they're loving everything I hate. And they're fucking annoying me. (laughs) I mean, I'm just getting madder and madder and madder. Because back when I was a little boy and I paid to see a movie and I felt I got hoodwinked, I was mad. And I'm sitting there mad watching the movie. And the fact that they were appreciating everything that made me mad made me mad at them. (laughs) And I'm just sitting there with my arms crossed and just... uh, Fucking this, this is a fucking ripoff, man. <laughs> <laughs> Popcorn was the best thing about this fucking movie. I haven't seen it since then. We watched it with you the other day. I'm only, I'm, I'm practically trepidatious about saying how I feel about the movie now for the simple fact that the thing that I don't want to do on this podcast is throw around the M word. I want the M word to mean something. The M word is masterpiece. I want the M word to mean something. I don't want to throw it around. And I don't want to call, I don't want to use the M word on the very first movie we talk about, but I actually think it applies to Dark Star. It's a science fiction masterpiece. It's a counterculture, anti-establishment, hippie filmmaking masterpiece. It's an early 70s masterpiece. I still agree that the guy playing Boiler is miscast. He, he, he looks like some buddy of theirs. You look like a biker or something. Yeah, he looks like somebody, some hippie buddy of theirs that they uh, enlisted to, to do the movie. And the guy in the... Uh, he was like uh, an accounting student or something. Yeah. He was the one guy outside of their group. Yeah, well, you can, you can tell. Yeah. You can tell. And the guy in the dome doesn't really make much of an impression. Um, and in the first half of the movie, I don't really care for the Captain Doolittle any more than I did back when I was younger. But he gets better as the movie goes on. In the course of time, he actually does grow as the film goes on. And in his final... You know, the, the climax of the movie, his philosophical conversation with, with Bomb 20. Mm-hmm. He's fantastic. He's amazing. I mean, he's, he's great in that scene. He's great in that scene. He, he, he builds up until that moment. And I can't really imagine that scene being done necessarily better. He, he is pretty terrific in that scene. But um, the thing that carries the entire movie through is Dan O'Bannon's comedy performance that I did not appreciate when I was younger and I have not appreciated up until now. And it rivals Bruce Campbell's comedy yeah. performance in- It's uh, a good the, comparison. The Evil Dead movies. Well, they almost seem like there's a symbiotic relationship yeah. between the two of them. Um, and the big set piece in the movie, which was added much later, is part of the thing that they added for uh, uh, Jack H. Harris to make it feature length, is the entire, what seems like a 15 minute set piece. Mm-hmm. Um, with uh, 
Dan O'Bannon fighting with this alien beach ball monster that they've brought on the ship. Now, the thing about the, the movie is the entire, all the special effects in the film is them literally trying to do the best that they possibly can to make it look like a real movie and make it look like a real spaceship and make it look like real space travel. And by the way, they completely predate the uh, uh, jump to light speed. Oh, completely. In uh, uh, Star Wars. I mean, yeah. to such a degree, it's obvious George Lucas saw, saw this and used the idea for those uh, for the light speed travel. They're doing a kind of proto slit scan uh, yeah. photography. I mean, it's, it's it would be it's it's impossible that Lucas had not seen that. Yeah. I mean, we know he saw. I it. even think it's better because it mm-hmm. feels more like what I imagine real light speed would be like. Yeah. Like I, I, I mm-hmm. love that. They go into a kind of stasis, like, and there, and, yeah, yeah. and there's a sort of gr- highly graphic quality to that moment. Mm-hmm. I love that there's this kind of streaked sparks yeah, like, yeah, flying yeah, yeah. by. Uh-huh, yeah. And then most especially when they come out of light speed. It just stops. It just comes dropping out as if, like, uh-huh. and that it had a feeling to it. Yeah. There's so many feelings to the way the movie is made. That feeling of coming out of light speed mm-hmm. I think it's way better than any other light speed I've ever seen no, it's, in it's, any it's, other movie. That feeling of coming out of it yeah. is sublime. It's well, a sublime moment. It's amazing. The moment when mm-hmm. the kind of lightning bolt during um, during the meteor shower, the lightning bolt strikes the mm-hmm. access bay uh-huh. and the camera kind of zooms in on the flash. And then you see this kind of highly graphic, almost, I mean, it looks like a graphic novel. It looks mm-hmm. like you know, painted by Mobius or something. Mm -hmm, It's like, (laughs) it's like an animation. Yeah. It has such a tactile handmade feeling. Like they really knew exactly what they were going for. They knew the comic beats that they were going for. Mm -hmm. Dan O'Bannon. I was convinced my whole life that he was the voice of the bomb. I've I've since heard he wasn't the voice Mm -hmm, of the bomb. One of the first huge laughs that I had in dark star watching it again is when they're dropping bomb 19 and the conversation <laughs> that uh pinback has with bomb 19 is bomb 19 goes off the blow of the planet bomb 19 okay bye, yeah, bye. <laughs> <laughs> so after pulling off all this uh uh convincing special effects they have this alien and they purposely make it cheesy they purposely make it crazy they take a red beach ball and put a uh, uh, creature of the Black Lagoon feet on it. Yeah. And again, like I said, when I was a kid, I despised that sequence. But here, I think it's one of the great comedy set pieces of that time period. And I think ranks up is right there with Sam Raimi and, and Bruce Campbell with the Attack of the Helping Hand, or, uh, you know, the, the, uh, the possessed hand sequence from uh, Evil Dead 2. And, uh, and not only that, though, even now acknowledging, oh, well, they're having fun with the fact that it's a red beach ball. Nick Castle is the puppeteer. Yeah. He's operating the beach ball alien monster who later would play uh, the shape, the shape. In, in the first uh, Halloween film. And Nick Castle does a tremendous job making that beach ball come to life. Yeah. It actually, he gives it a personality. It's a Muppet-like performance. Yeah. Just he, using his hands. He gives it a, a sense of humor. He mm-hmm. he gives it a sense of mischievousness. He gives it a sense of malevolence. It, yeah. It, it's also, it kind of just wants to play. Like, I have a cat like that that yeah, just yeah, wants yeah. to, like, you know, come get me and claw me in the middle of the night. Yeah. And <laughs> he just wants to play. And I, and I love how when Dan O'Bannon goes in, they have... <laughs> Some like a lighting effect that's meant to be some other. Kind oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Of, yeah and he's the, like, get out. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Those, <laughs> those weird twinkly. He's just annoyed with them at this. Just annoyed with everything. <laughs> and so there's an entire sequence that is just 
absolute comedy gold that takes place uh, where Dan O'Bannon is stuck in a elevator shaft fighting the alien. And uh, at the end of the day, along with the theme of whatever, it's one of the reasons why people talk about Dark Star yeah. to this day. It's this big, it's this big sequence. It, and it has like a little nod there in that moment mm-hmm. uh, to 2001 with the explosive bolts in yeah, the yeah, elevator yeah. and like prepare for the explosive yeah. bolts going off. Yeah. What's funny is we're watching, I'm buying the whole elevator shaft. I'm not going to uh, uh, relate how it was filmed. You have to figure that out yourself. But as I'm watching it, I'm buying the whole damn thing. Yeah. And then at some point you go, wow, see, he's doing a really good job selling the effect. And when you said that, that made me figure out how they did it. Yeah, sorry, but up, up, sorry. <laughs> but up until, which made me just say appreciate it even more. But up until that time, I, I, I bought it. I yeah. was just, he I was, was doing just a there. kind of like Harold Lloyd. Uh, yeah, yeah. He's absolutely you know, doing a Harold Lloyd. You know, yeah. Amazing comic, physical performance. I mean, Bruce Campbell is a great uh, yeah. um, comparison. Uh, so, so look, that is my take on Dark Star. I actually think it's a classic now. I've, I've revisited it and I could not be more in love with it. In fact, of all the films that we saw, it's the one that it's the one that I keep going back to. It's the one that kind of haunted me a little bit. I keep finding myself thinking whether whether it's that Benson, Arizona theme song or it's, it's a very melancholic film, it, you know, and Ban- O'Banion's moment. Ah! <laughs> 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 yeah, like when the lights turn on in the mm-hmm. elevator shaft and when the bolts go off uh-huh. in, in in the elevator, or at least when they are armed mm-hmm. in the elevator, yeah, uh-huh. when they go off, it's to be honest, that scene doesn't end. No, I, no, no, it's my, it's my biggest, it's my, actually my biggest uh, 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 criticism of the whole film is to commit to such a long comic set piece as they do. I'm totally down with, but now you need to end it the right way. Yeah. And they just kind of wrap it up. Yeah. You, you don't buy how we got out of it. After stretching it out and making it amazing, you don't buy how they got out of it. Yeah, and, and then you, I, you know. and I feel only then, mm-hmm. only then do I feel that the scene was inserted yeah, into yeah, yeah. something. Right. Like that it that it didn't really have a satisfying kind of Yeah, uh, we I mean he, he um, got himself into but, all this trouble. But he had to get out of it in a way that you buy. Yeah. And they just kind of wrap that up. Now, the thing is, uh, I've got a couple quotes. I've gone through my literature and stuff. Um, Carpenter gave a quote about Dark Star, but after making the movie and releasing it, I thought that once it was out, meaning Dark Star, the film industry would come rushing at my door and carry me off on their shoulders to another film. So I was somewhat shocked and depressed that no one paid attention. Yeah, I've been there. No one really cared. No one considered it a legitimate film. It may seem like a successful cult movie now, but for me, it was a four-year struggle. Yeah. So it's, a, it's hard to separate yourself from yeah. that, you know, the the pain of that. In a similar vein, in uh, uh, issue 20 of Fangoria from the 1982, there's a, um, a roundtable discussion between Landis, Cronenberg, and Carpenter by Mick Garris. And uh, they're starting it off. And Mick goes, uh, can you describe your experience from the transition from film school to becoming an actual director? Carpenter kind of repeats his spiel about Dark Star. It's difficult. I made a film with my own money, about 60000 and I fought my way with it. And once it was released, I thought all the studio heads were going to come over to my house in limousines, knock on the door and say, we've seen your film. We know you're great. Come on. There's a crew waiting on the street. <laughs> yeah. We all think that to some extent. Yeah. But they didn't care. <laughs> All right. So um, so now, if you look it up in the Psychotronic, Michael Weldon Psychotronic Film Guide, the Dark Star entry is an impressive accomplishment 
that started as a USC project shot in 16 millimeter and running around 45 minutes. Jack H. Harris put up additional funds, so the original footage was blown up to 35 and 43 minutes were added. The whole thing cost about $60,000. It received a limited theatrical release in 1975 and has since become a midnight and college favorite. Young spacemen fight boredom while on a protracted mission to destroy unstable suns. Planets, actually. Except for a purposely laughable beach ball alien, the special effects are excellent. Co-script writer Dan O'Bannon also stars as Pinback. He later wrote Alien, a somewhat similar film, but without Dark Star's comedy. Carpenter went on to demonstrate his directorial skill on Assault on Precinct 13 and Halloween. A soundtrack is available. And then in um, the L.A. Reader, Myron Mazel wrote about Dark Star. A witty and stylish science fiction satire by John Assault on Precinct 13, Halloween Carpenter, and Dan Alien O'Bannon. The Dark Star is an intergalactic bomber wandering through the universe in a, on a vaguely Nixonian mission. <laughs> I like the, des- the description of a Nixonian future. On a vaguely Nixonian mission to destroy unpopulated planets that might stand in the way of space travel. The ship's crew is variously bored, blissed out, and relentlessly rambunctious. By introducing human eccentricities, mostly of a Southern California ilk, into the cold structure of sci-fi, Carpenter creates a vision of the technological future that is both disillusioned and oddly affirmative in its insistence on the unscientific survival of emotional frailty. Mm. Amazingly, the film was made on a reported budget of $60,000. Do you think, uh, I mean, we know that Dan O'Bannon is pinned back. And I think the the hint of this is the the bottle um, music machine. Do you think yeah. Doolittle is meant to be uh, representative of Carpenter? Well, I would. I think have, that's who Carpenter would place himself within the movie. Well, I would have thought. That, well, no, I don't see him. I mean, uh, uh, I don't see Carpenter being as disillusioned as Doolittle is. He doesn't care about anything. Give me something to blow up. Yeah. All right. Uh, well, he um, cares about like what he remembers in the past. Oh, he does care about what he remembers. Uh, I like. I, I I see what you're talking about. However. The only reason I would say, wait a minute, a second, <laughs> is in that making of documentary, I actually thought that uh, Doolittle playing that bottle organ was uh, a Carpenter touch oh, that he brought to it. But Carpenter hated that sequence. <laughs> Apparently, that was one of the things that they added that he hated. <laughs> really? Yeah. In the making that's of right, thing. That's yeah. right. They said that in the making of. Before we move off of Dark Star, we watch it on United... Home Video, all right, which also released other films in the United Home Video label, uh, Hustler Squad, uh, Gorgo. Gorgo. Uh, uh, the Night Visitor with uh, uh, Lee Volman and uh, Max von Sydow. Yeah. Another put together uh, hippie science fiction classic, Glenn and Randa, Jim McBride's Glenn oh, and Randa. Uh, yeah. Eddie Romero's early Beyond American, Atlantis. Early American New Wave. Charles Band's Dracula's Dog. Yeah. Also Eddie Romero's... Uh, I worked for Charlie Band for a while. Yeah, I know you did. Uh, Beast of the Yellow Knight and the infamous Manson Manson. documentary that we watched a zillion times at uh, Video Archives. God, look at this box. Like lived, that lived on the Wow, they went all out on this beautiful box. Yeah, they did. Did you use this? Did you watch this? Oh, of course they did. I mean, you must have. Oh, no, no. Research. No, every, all the girls in the movie all had their own DVDs of this. (laughs) Uh, 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 But they also did movies like... uh, um, uh, Jack Palance's One Man Jury, Toolbox Murders, The Devil's Reign, 
Uh, I love the Devil's Ring. Crater. Uh, We're going to definitely talk about yeah, that. Yeah, the cr- Crater Lake Monster uh, and uh, Alistair Sims' uh, Christmas Carol. That was United Home Video, and uh, they were a cool little company. 20 years in space, 1 million light years from Earth. Their job is to clear a path for the colonization of space. Back home, back home in Malibu. I used to surf a lot, Talby. I used to be a great surfer. Travel in an infinite universe with mind-melting excitement from beyond the stars. Dark star. They're not lost in space. They're loose. Dark Star, with co-hit Life Force, will be playing on August 1st and 2nd on glorious 35mm film at the new Beverly Cinema, 7165 Beverly Boulevard, Los Angeles, California. For further information, go to thenewbev.com. The new Beverly Cinema, always on film. Okay, and we're back. And starting the second half of our show, we are joined by our announcer, Gala Avery. Hello. Hello, everybody. Say hello to the nice people. Hello, everyone out there listening. Podcast land. Happens to be my daughter. Yes, (laughs) daughter and producer, yes. (laughs) So, so Gala, we've been talking about these films. Which of these films did you manage to see? I actually managed to watch both the movies for this episode. For everyone out there in podcast land, you guys are in luck. Dark Star is available pretty much everywhere. I watched mine out of my dad's DVD collection. And I also have some special secret VHS tapes for you today, Quentin. Oh, really? Yes. Uh-huh. Straight from eBay. <laughs> wow, excellent, excellent. <laughs> and actually, before you begin, I, I should probably just say, like, while we were doing our stuff and I was, you know, watching all this, I didn't supply Gala really with anything other than you told her the titles yes. that we were doing. And then I just left her to her own devices. Yeah. So. The, yeah. Gala does not have <laughs> the access to the video archives collection that I do. And via me, Roger does. And so the idea is uh, Gala's just a regular person out there trying to hunt these titles down the way you out in Radioland might be hunting these titles down. And she's either successful or she's not. Yeah, and yeah, this time, luckily this time I was successful. And this time you were successful. Yeah, and, I, and I haven't really talked to you about this at all, so I'm super excited <laughs> yeah, kept to hear. Yeah, this under wraps. Yeah. So, well, today the first movie you guys talked about was Dark Star, which I was shown also when I was like 12 years old by my dad. Mm-hmm. And I have to tell you, the only thing I remember about Dark Star is the alien sequence. <laughs> it is alien for children, basically, <laughs> at that point. And in my brain, when I was rewatching, I was like, where's the alien? That's uh, supposed to be the entire movie in my brain. Uh, and I was like, no, 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 it's not the entire film. When you rewatched the movie. When I rewatched the movie, yeah. I'm waiting for that alien. And it's only there for like 15, 20, 30 <laughs> yeah. minutes. And I'm thinking, where did it go? Oh, it's dead. <laughs> but upon rewatching it, I'm able to appreciate, especially the, the dialogue of the movie. Mm-hmm. I find the dialogue so witty, so interesting, so quick. And the visuals are so cool. I know mm-hmm. you guys were kind of talking about like, would a younger audience connect mm-hmm. with these visuals? The answer is yes. Mm-hmm. When I'm sitting there, sorry to all the Marvel fans out there, but when I'm sitting there and I'm watching a movie that's just big painted CGI, I get kind of bored. Yeah, me too. And when I look and I see Dark Star, man, it has style. It's so cool. You can mm-hmm. tell that there is the artist paintbrush on every frame of the movie. Mm -hmm. It's exciting. So I love that. And obviously my favorite character is Pinback. (laughs) Dan O'Bannon is amazing in this movie. 
And I think it's important because you guys were talking about how 2001 has obviously influenced Darkstar. Mm-hmm. But you guys didn't really talk about the influence that Darkstar had on modern comedic science fiction, including Galaxy Quest, sure, where yeah. Guy is Pinback. <laughs> he's that guy that's not supposed to be on the ship. Yeah. But he oh, is, the Sam Rockwell character. Sam Rockwell yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. And he's the one guy that knows and cares. He looks at him and says, haven't you guys seen the show before? That's mm-hmm. Pinback. And that's Pinback's Yeah, influence. he's literally like the lowest person on that crew. He doesn't even belong on that crew, Sam Rockwell. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, he's... Uh, and l- he like, knows he's the most disp- uh, dis- disposable. disposable. Yeah, I'm the red shirt. <laughs> I don't even have a name. <laughs> it's like... But that's the influence I think that Darkstar has had. And also, you guys brought up something really interesting in your podcast earlier when you said, who is John Carpenter in this movie? Mm-hmm. Well, John Carpenter is not Doolittle. He's the guy up in the bubble. He actually <laughs> revoices the guy up in the bubble. Wow. Which is said That's Carpenter's in, voice? That's Carpenter's voice. I didn't know that. Yeah, which I believe is spoken about either in the, uh, the audio, audio commentary. commentary on the DVD. Yeah, which super fan audio commentary? The super fan mm-hmm. audio commentary on the DVD, which is what I watched, is that Carpenter, because the actor had such a thick and heavy accent, mm-hmm. he revoiced the character. So if I was going to say who is Carpenter's self-insert... It would be him. The stone, the stone guy stone in the bubble. Yeah. Who's going to fly off and he's like, oh, look at the pretty lights. It's yeah. so pretty. I'm yeah. one of them. I have to tell you something. It's really important. It's. Oh, yeah. I think that is the funniest thing I've heard this year. <laughs> All right. That whole... And again, I remembered being everyone laughing in the theater and me being mad at them. All right. <laughs> but let me tell you this one last thing. It's, it's important. most important. Don't ever. <laughs> I think it's a great moment. And he's going to tour the galaxy forever, yeah, glowing like one of the stars. <laughs> Maybe that is uh, and I think that's Carpenter. Carpenter. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you very much thank for this guys. mid-show uh, report. <laughs> and thank you guys so much for having me. <laughs> thank you. So now we're going to move on to the next film, Cocaine Cowboys. Which was a first for me. No, this was definitely a first for myself as well. I've known about this movie. I've never heard it was good. I've never heard anybody say anything good about it. I never heard it was necessarily good. However, in the 80s, it did play from time to time in colleges and uh, and the calendars of revival houses, usually with a Warhol title. So it was like, you you could see it with uh, Andy Warhol's Bad. Or it might play with something like uh, uh, 200 Motels. Sure. Because of the title. So now I'm going to read uh, the um, the back of the video box to explain the story, which is not going to do a good job of it, by the way. This thriller concerns the exploits of a struggling rock band whose members resort to drug smuggling in order to finance their music career. They end up in deep trouble with mobsters and hired killers. Special appearance by Andy Warhol, rated R for nudity and graphic violence, rated R, 90 minutes. That says everything you would need to say, except for the fact that you've got Jack Palance in, in this movie. Yes, exactly. So like, now, why wouldn't they say that in there? Yeah, well, well, they're like, just, why wouldn't you sell Jack Palance? Uh, well, they should have. So what the, uh, uh, the basic storyline of the story, normally I'll try not to do this, but on this one, that was insufficient, so I'll do it, is... Tom Sullivan plays a guy who, uh, he's a rock star. He's got a band, which is strangely, the name of the band is never mentioned. 
I just assume they're the cocaine cowboys. Yeah, yeah, no, no, yeah, no, no, yeah, yeah. Well, that would be a good name for them, but they're as much as they're talked about in the abstract. The name of the band is never mentioned in the course of the movie. Yeah, but uh, uh, their manager is Jack Palance. Their lead singer is Tommy Sullivan, and he's playing himself in the film. And it seems like the band is really, really starting to take off. They're really starting to really make a name for themselves. However, the way that they got started is they started working for these uh, gangster guys and they became cocaine cowboys. And what cocaine cowboys are, is they're, they're smugglers. They would get a bunch of cocaine and um, duffel bags or whatever, mm-hmm. and they would put them on a, a small single Cessna kind of uh, amateur airplane, small airplane, small airplane that would fly from Colombia or Mexico into America. First to Florida, then up to New York. Yes, exactly. And then while they're in the sky, before they land, they will toss the drugs out of the airplane at a certain designated place somewhere out in the woods or in some uh, uh, open area. And then our heroes, the, the, uh, the rock group, on horses will pick up the drugs and that's how the drugs are smuggled into America. And now, but now the band is now starting to do really well. So they want to disassociate themselves from the smuggling business and just be a rock band. And Jack Palance wants to help them with that. However, what happens is they're, they're, they're doing one of their cocaine runs and the guy on the plane sees some cops and he freaks at the airport. So he throws out the drugs. He just gets rid of the drugs, not at the designated place, just throws it out like by the beach somewhere. Yeah. And so it's not the cocaine cowboy's fault that this happens. Nevertheless, they're on the hook for the drugs. Yeah, I don't care where the drugs are. Yeah. I want my money. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> you, I want my drugs. You bought them. Yeah. You bought them. So they're under the gun to come up with the money for the drugs or to find the drugs. And so they're, you know, so they they spend a lot of the movie scouring on horseback, looking for where the drugs possibly. There's fell. E- endless magic hour shots of them yeah. riding around on horses on these rocky, marshy mm-hmm. uh, lands. Yeah. It's really beautiful. Yeah, lyrical. So, okay. Lyrical. So that's the so that's the setup for the plot of the movie. What the movie is really about is two things. One, it's it's setting up the lead star of the film, Tommy Sullivan, setting him up as a rock star. And yeah, uh, there's many scenes of uh, him and his band rehearsing, him and his mm-hmm. band playing different songs. Eventually, the uh, uh, the Cocaine Cowboy song, which yeah. I actually quite like. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and you end up missing it at the end. You want a reprise. Yeah, yeah. Well, you absolutely want it. You playing need a reprise. You absolutely yeah. want it playing in the, in the closing credits. Uh, punctuated with... These standalone scenes of Jack Palance. He probably only worked for three days and uh, they, they did pretty much all of his stuff either within a week or, with, or, or within three days. However, he's fantastic in the movie. He's, 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 he's completely doing an Alan Garfield in uh, uh, Skateboard the Movie, yeah. where he's, it's, it's, most of the movie you can tell, even though there probably was a script to some degree or another, is pretty much improvised by the actors throughout the film. But it's Jack Palance's improvisations are fantastic. Yeah. 
He makes the film. Every sequence he's in is just funny and it's exciting. He's off. He, what? He looks amazing. Yeah. Okay. He looks fit and handsome. He's he, like the Jack Palance who's doing one armed uh, yeah, push ups on look, stage or something. He looks terrific. <laughs> and he looks like he's having a great time. Yeah. He looks like he's having a great time and we're having a great time. Whether or not you respond to this movie is all going to be dependent on whether or not you respond to Tommy Sullivan the the lead and uh i think most of the people who don't like the movie like ah it's a horrible band i can't stand them i hate the songs i hate him it's a fucking drag well i actually disagree i actually thought he was really groovy i really got into tommy sullivan he's like a michael madsen type of guy all right dresses like a cowboy he's like a hippie michael madsen he's like a hippie michael madsen michael madsen playing a 70s, if Michael Madsen played a 70s era Bob Dylan. Yeah. Is kind of what Tommy Sullivan is in this Robbing movie. bits of Billy Jack's wardrobe. Yes, exactly. <laughs> I'm just like. Uh, um, well, and I think he's a good singer and he's, and he's really coming on, you know, he takes his shirt off when he sings and going on to be this real sexy he's, rock star. But I, I think he's got a really powerful voice. Yeah. I think he's got a real good lead lead rock star singer's voice. I like the songs. Naturally, as Uli Lamel is prone to do, he overuses that one song too many times. Yeah. I would have rather had like at least five different songs. But I actually really like the music in the film. But one of the things about the movie that makes it work rather than just this weird uh, patchwork of various scenes, this movie actually is one of the more realistic movies about a drug deal gone wrong yeah. I think I've ever seen. Yeah. One of the things that actually gives this Tommy Sullivan and, and, and consequently the movie itself authenticity <coughs> is it's pretty fucking obvious this is who Tommy Sullivan is. He's obviously a drug smuggler. He's definitely more of a drug smuggler than he actually is a rock star, even though I buy the rock star aspect as far as as far as they're selling it in the course of the movie. But he definitely is a, is a drug dealer that he definitely is a drug smuggler. That is. And everything about it is authentic. Yeah. You buy you buy, you know, no, this is this guy's story. This is why they're making the movie. He does all this. And then in, in, in reality. He was one of the most known drug smugglers of, of his era. He actually didn't do cocaine. He actually smuggled uh, marijuana and hashish, but he did it exactly this way by renting uh, uh, airplanes and, 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 and dumping shit out and catching it and, you know, and, and uh, having a team on horseback. But again, that's another aspect about the movie that works really well is him and his bandmates look fucking bitching on their horses yeah, in their hippie cowboy outfits. It's obvious they know how to ride horses. There's a comfortability on the horses. This weird aspect of cocaine cowboys of this hippie cowboy movie, they, they capture that. They absolutely capture that. There are moments in showing them in the drug deal and on the, on, on the horses riding to do the things that they're doing. It suggests a, a hippie peck and paw. Sure. It's one of the things that stops it different from being a bunch of uh, uh, unrelated scenes that, while entertaining initially, wears out its welcome, mm -hmm. which is like a lot of these movies that, that happens a lot. Frequently. A lot of the reviews we'll end up doing on this show was like, okay, it was great, it was great, and then there's that last 30 minutes, and then it runs out of fucking gas. All right, that's going to be a lot of the movies we're going to say, That's because that's a lot of movies. But Cocaine Cowboys actually does hold together all the way to the end 
because at the end of the day, it is a crime film. It actually is about a drug deal. To top it all off, the twist at, at one, you actually, there is a whole reveal. There's a whole third act reveal about what happened to the money that I was not expecting. And it was actually kind of clever. Yeah. It was, I bought, I it bought was it. Un- completely realistic yeah. too. But then- but It the, was actually how it would really Well, play the out. way the drug deal plays out is about as realistic as anything I've ever seen yeah. in a movie about this subject. Yeah. I mean, it's like, oh, that obviously happened to somebody. Yeah. You know, when we first started watching this film, I didn't know anything. You, you called me up and you were like, Uli Lamel, Uli Lamel. The only thing I knew about him was Fassbender. Yeah. Was that he was part of that Fassbender gang. He's part of the gang. Fassbender New German cinema yeah, the, in the early 70s. Yeah, Die Neue Deutsche mm-hmm. Film or whatever mm-hmm. they called it. Part of the Oberkampf movement. New queer cinema, all that, yeah. Yeah, it was, it, well, it was actually even more than that because this was an entire generation of filmmakers who had no forefathers in cinema to look up to, to base their styles on. They didn't have that because Germany had just gone through a period of barbarism. Yeah, yeah. And so instead, they looked to the French New Wave, mm-hmm. and uh, all these Germans looked to what they were, what was happening in France, which was light cameras, you know, sensitive film stocks, mm-hmm. grab a camera, go out and catch something. Um, Uli Lamel comes to New York. He makes Blank Generation, and then he makes this film. Well, okay, and, okay, no, but, before his biggest claim to fame, his biggest claim to legitimacy. Is after starring in the in the Fassbender films, he does a movie about a German serial killer that Fassbender produces yeah. called uh, "The Tenderness of Wolves," that I've always heard about, but I've never seen. It's a notorious. <laughs> yes, yeah, it's, it's notorious, but apparently it's pretty good, and uh, it has a bunch of the Fassbender actors in it. Fassbender's even acts in it himself, yeah. and so that was his claim to legitimacy. Then he came to New York, and then he did his underground new wave movie, which was Blank Generation. Which I hadn't seen. Yeah, I, we, we, well, I'd, I'd heard about it, never seen it. We, we watched it as a, uh, after we saw Cocaine Cowboys, we watched it as a, a, a research movie. Which is interesting because the two movies, mm-hmm. there's a, um, I mean, he's reusing- Well, there's a symbiotic relationship between the two, even though I don't like Blank Generation I, at all. Exactly, but but ideas are thought out in Blank Generation that would later be fulfilled. I agree. No, that, I think Cocaine that's- Cocaine Cowboys. No, that's, that, that, that's very well said. Well, and, and that was kind of the CSI component of watching Cocaine Cowboys is like the movie is composed of, like mm-hmm. it begins with this interview scene yeah, yeah. where Andy Warhol is- interviewing Tom Mm -hmm. and you immediately can tell either this guy is an amazing actor or he's really recounting things that are real. Yeah. That really happened. Oh, that guy must be a real drug dealer. I started just studying it and seeing, okay, it's, it's coverage. It's two cameras. He's got one in a dolly. He's got another one uh, where he's catching Mm close-ups of people who's just moving back and forth and catching close-ups. And then I noticed there's all these uh, rehearsal sequences mm-hmm. where he and his band are rehearsing. And it's uh, the same setups. They rented um, Andy Warhol's house in Montauk. Yeah. And uh, shot the film there. And uh, Andy Warhol is actually in the movie as Andy Warhol kind of th- throughout it. And actually, in, and I liked him in it. I actually thought he was a neat, neat element to it. He's kind of fantastic. He's super naturalistic. Yeah. Uh-huh. He's, you know, he's actually asking. And yeah, you can tell he actually has a fondness for Tommy Sullivan. Yeah. The and then, too. and there's that other interview scene where he, they're looking at pictures. Yeah. And Tommy Sullivan's talking about his, his hand. Yeah. And- well, one of the things about the film, which I actually, I, I have to say, I didn't notice it at first. All right. Until it came up. But he wears this really gorgeous white leather glove throughout the movie. He ends up talking about why he wears the glove. And it turns out, and again, you realize that this is actually true. 
you realize that he was on an airplane, probably doing a drug deal, and the plane crashed. And he was terribly burnt, and his hand engulfed in flames. His hand was 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 burnt to a nub. Yeah, it's just bone. Yeah, and so now he wears this glove where, wherever to he hide the hideous claw wherever within. he goes. <laughs> okay. Like, now, in the Andy Warhol diaries, in the entry dated January 9th, nineteen seventy eight, said in Halston's townhouse, it reads. Then Peter Beard came in with a guy who had a beautiful glove and a bottle of Coke in the other hand. And then later, he showed us the hand, which was a stump. It looked like in the movies when they showed the fiendish ghoul. He lost it in a plane crash, his third plane crash, a DC-10 that he owns. He passed the bottle of Coke around. And in the book, The Last Party, it reveals that that man was Tom Sullivan. And he was from Tampa, Florida. Beard, a photographer and socialite who had been introduced to him by the tennis player, Sullivan looked like a charming rube and a former football player, which he was. What with his leather clothes, his Western hat, he also looked like a country rocker in a 60s band. Sullivan, in brief, might have seemed like an unlikely addition to the inner core of the club, except that he always seemed to have amazing quantities of both drugs and money, so the core swiftly enfolded Sullivan into their embrace. So two interesting quotes on Sullivan, both from the uh, uh, Andy Warhol diaries and from The Last Party. So my thoughts, ultimately, on Cocaine Cowboys, I really dug it. I really dug it. I was surprised. I expected it to be interesting, but I expected it to run a gas. To me, it didn't run out of gas. Um, it's the one that I was tempted to look at again, but I didn't want to because I didn't want to put it under that much of a microscope. I was afraid I wouldn't like it if I watched it again. I'm not sold on Uli Lamel as a filmmaker, but I think he pulled off something with Cocaine Cowboys. And one of the things that I really appreciated about the movie is I think this film captures the aesthetic that Dennis Hopper as a filmmaker was mm-hmm. always trying to capture and never quite captured. Now, I mean, you can make a case that he captured it in in well, well, you uh, can, you can in play- Easy Rider, and you'd be right. However, like you know, he had originally had a four-hour cut of Easy Rider. This is cut down to make the film. But if these wild movies that Dennis Hopper had in his head in the first half of the seventies, if he had actually been able to make them, and they had actually been coherent, that could actually carried off like a real commercial movie, oh, commercial movie, but you know, commercially released movie, they would have been like Cocaine Cowboys. Yeah. I think the style that he was after, if he had ever found it. Yeah. I was ready to, I'm making more of a case about Tommy Sullivan. I, I, w- I was prepared to make more of a case about Uli LaMille until I saw Black Generation. What do you think about um, his relationship with Fassbender? Because it's not like he works with Fassbender again. He's mm-hmm. cut, like, he and Fassbender are close. He's younger than Fassbender. Mm-hmm. And like Fassbender is part of the, like that whole Oberkampf manifesto group. Mm-hmm. The, the, he's like at the front of the new German cinema with uh, yeah. uh, Wim Wenders mm-hmm. and Herzog and those guys. Uli Lamel is like not second generation, but clearly like his, I don't want to say protege, but like his. Well, it, 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 it would appear, it would appear that, uh, you know, he was part of the Fassbender camp and that was for sure in Germany. Then he moved to New York and then became part of the Andy Warhol camp. Yeah. Well, he, traded like, one, he traded one camp for another. And camp. the question is, why why leave that camp? Because in Germany at that time, unless the money was also being used for blank generation, at that time in Germany, they had formed their own uh, system because the 
the the German industry was kind of broken, and so these guys were like they formed their own distribution entity. Why would he? Go, why would he go to New York to well, make New York shitty? Is, New York why would he fabulous. go to New York to make shitty exploitation movies? That I do not know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> when it seems like he has a good situation making uh, uh, yeah. Gonzo art movies, I, do, I that I do I do not have an answer for that. <laughs> There it is. The whole thing is watching it. You know, like I'm always thinking about production, economy of production. Mm-hmm. How do you get the most for less? I mean, we've just come off of a $40,000 film. This movie was for sure more than that. Mm-hmm. This is probably 400, 300, yeah. 400,000. I've heard up to a million. Really? I've heard uh, in some of That's the- That's what they rep- tell you. And some of the reports- That's what the producers say. <laughs> some of the reports I've heard up to a million. And I find that hard to believe, but there is a, but there is a quality of- of, of, of camera work. There well, is a quality of film. There is a quality to it that, it, you that know. That is possible because they may have been searching for moments and yeah. that takes time. Yeah. And you can definitely feel that someone was taking time to do things. However, so much of it is, okay, we've got this bed, which is the narration with Andy Warhol. We've got these beds of- uh, of uh, Music sequences. Music sequences where we're rehearsing that are endless. It seems yeah, like it goes uh, on and on and on. And, and mm-hmm. the movie is designed as a showcase for all of yeah, that. Yeah, And then we have our Jack Palance scenes. And then know. we've got, you know, your four days with Jack Palance where you jam yeah. him in and you just, you somehow you get him high probably. That's probably yeah. why he's so <laughs> fucking on fire in the movie <laughs> yeah. is he's on cocaine. <laughs> he must be because he's just outstanding. He's in outstanding. In. And you're right. He is doing the Alan Garfield thing where, he has a very, very loose script written by a German, probably. Yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> he's got a loose script and he's got to he, make he's it there, his own. He's there to riff and make something out of nothing. And he does. Oh, he brings it all. He's awesome. And, he's just, he's amazing. And it. so, and then, and then, so you've got these, and then you've got these kind of long, highly lyrical shots around Montauk, just shooting yeah, yeah. the, uh, them riding around on their horses through the marshes, searching for the, yeah. the cocaine. And actually, I mean, and again, you don't expect the drug story to start getting into the minutia yeah. of it in the second half, and it does. Yeah. And, and then there is there is a turn. Well, like the, the, the plot, there's actually a plot that turns yeah, plot in a way there. you don't expect. I'm it saying to. it's like thirty percent plot, seventy mm-hmm. percent feeling. Yes, you know, there's all this feeling going on, and then you start realizing this is all based on him actually talking to Andy Warhol, mm-hmm. who's. Like in those days, everybody loves an outlaw. Yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. And he's there, you know, in New York, and they're among all the glam people, and all the mm-hmm. glam people want to hang out with an outlaw. Yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. And he's telling them all these stories, and and it's sort of like Uli Lamel's hanging out in that scene, mm-hmm. and he's just done Blank Generation. It just makes sense. So here's the okay. So so I've finished the film. I'm like, well, who the fuck is this Tommy Sullivan guy? Well, I go and find out. Okay, so. I do a lot of research now. Also, if you're trying to go do research on Tommy Sullivan, you're going to get screwed up a little bit on the internet because uh, there's that dorky blind singer guy, Tom Sullivan, <laughs> all right, from the 70s that's out there. I hated. He was on every talk show when I was a kid. I fucking hated that guy. And finding out who Tommy Sullivan is, he's actually talked about quite a bit. He's quite a character in um, the book, The Last Party, which is the book about uh, Studio 54, mm-hmm. that time by uh, Anthony Hayden Guest. He's also mentioned quite a bit in the Warhol uh, Diaries. He's a main character in a couple of Albert Goldman uh, articles. Mm-hmm. And he's, um, Tommy Sullivan is mentioned in Margaret Trudeau's autobiography, which will become clear later And when I tell the Tommy Sullivan story. So basically what happened with Tommy Sullivan is around 77, he hits New York 
in the last party, the first mention of Tommy Sullivan is quoted as a gangly Floridian with blue eyes, pink skin, and longish fair hair. That's how he's described. He's not just a successful drug smuggler. He's one of the most known legendary drug smugglers of his time because he's the one who kind of came up with the whole concept of putting them in uh, uh, mini airplanes and dropping them. In fact, it's even quoted as saying that the talk about Tommy Sullivan is before Tommy Sullivan, drug smuggling was done on wheels. Tommy's the one that gave it wings. And all of a sudden, this cowboy hippie shows up in New York City with $2 million in cash, and he wants to have a good time. So where does he go? Studio 54. And he's got drugs. He's got unlimited cash. And apparently, uh, according to, in, in the last party, according to one of the bartenders, he was the best tipper at Studio 54. He would go to Studio 54, he would ask for uh, Jack Daniels, he want, and he'd want the Jack Daniels poured right up to the rim. And then when they did that, he'd put $100. He would pay he, he paid for every drink he ever bought at Studio 54 with $100, no matter what it cost. And so from that point on, that bartender made sure that he always took care of Tommy Sullivan. So, uh, you know, he, he becomes a scenester there. And while being a scenester, he becomes friendly with the Warhol mob that's hanging out at Studio 54. At the same time all this is happening, Margaret Trudeau has left her husband, the Prime Minister of Canada, Pierre Trudeau. And she's in New York. And she's there to have a good time. She's there to party. She's there to party. (laughs) And so by hanging out with uh, um, Andy Warhol, she meets Tommy Sullivan. And they have an affair. And there's even a picture of them dancing together in the last party book. And you can imagine how terrible this was for Pierre Trudeau while he's the prime minister. Yeah, he's a standing prime minister. Not only is his <laughs> wife in New York catting around in public where paparazzi is filming her and everybody knows it. The last person as the, you would want your wife to have an affair with is this skeezy drug dealer yeah. who thinks he's a cowboy Michael Madsen. <laughs> the last guy you want with your wife. Well, but that's but that's that's what time it is. <laughs> but they actually make a really good couple because she's kind of elegant and chic and yeah. and and he's kind of grimy and it's grimy. Yeah, yeah no, like, no like, exactly. It, it, they actually look really good together. And then there's another there's another uh, um, Warhol uh, gal, uh, Catherine Guinness. He's having a an affair with her, but also hanging around with Warhol and becoming part of Warhol's little crew. You know, he's hanging out with people like uh, Isabella Rossellini, Bianca Jagger, Klaus von Bülow. You know, he's hanging out with all of them. And, you know, and one of those, one of those people. Klaus von Bülow, all of them. Uh, Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, right. (laughs) (laughs) I guess, yeah. Probably throwing Truman Capote in there or Liz Taylor. Right, you know. uh, uh, Now it's all of them. (laughs) And then, uh, uh, but also uh, Uli Lamel is one of them. So he now knows Uli Lamel a little bit, and uh, he goes and visits uh, the set, probably, of Blank Generation. Mm-hmm. So he's watching Blank Generation being made, and he's watching them shoot Richard Hell and orchestrate everything around that, and Warhol's in that, and he's and Sullivan's sitting there watching this thing. Hey, 
this would be pretty fucking cool. I kind of like this. And he kind of wants to be a singer, you know, and he's seeing the treatment that uh, Richard Hell's getting. So he goes up to Uli Lamel and says, so look, if, uh, uh, if I could get the money, I'd like to do, if I, if I can get the money, if I can get a name actor to agree to be in the film, would you be interested in doing a movie starring me? It'd be, and, uh, and you could do and be a similar thing, what you're doing with Richard Hell. I get to sing, I get to do this. And I'll also tell my drug story. Will you, will you direct the movie? And Lamel goes, yeah, sure. Fuck yeah. Of course I'll do it. So they write the film. Now at the same time, there's uh, uh, two other guys that uh, uh, Sullivan meets at this time, a guy named Tom Forshade and Lech Kowalski. Now mm. they want to get into the movie making business. So basically with Tommy's drug money, he grub stakes them to get them going. And uh, they end up making two movies. The first movie is the famous punk rock documentary, DOA. Yeah, yeah. That's the movie that, that has the big uh, Sid and Nancy yeah. interview in it. And then the second movie is Cocaine Cowboys. Now, I heard that um, Tommy Sullivan grubstaked the movie. Also doing other research, I think he paid for the whole goddamn movie himself. I think he, when it comes to, uh, when, at least when it comes to uh, Cocaine Cowboys, he paid for the whole damn movie. It's a vanity project. If we're no, really it's talking, a, it's oh, a vanity oh, project. Oh, it's absolutely it's a, a film of project. caprice. I mean. And then it's, and and I've I've heard different figures as far as like the budget of it is concerned, but I've, I, I've even heard it being referred to as a million dollars. That is the Tommy Sullivan story. He makes uh, Cocaine Cowboys. I couldn't find that if it ever got a theatrical release in Los Angeles, per, I mean, uh, during its initial theatrical run. It did play New York and it got a bad review in the, in the New York Times. And I think after that, that's when it started falling into the, uh, 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 the repertory house circuit mm. and, the, and the college circuit and the you know, cult midnight. The late night circuit. Yeah, yeah. midnight circuit. Um, Tommy later, uh, uh, his affair blew up with uh, Margaret Trudeau. She actually dumped him for Jack Nicholson for a while. Uh, he uh, was trying to get out of the drug business. I heard at some point some gangsters showed up in New York and uh, he gave them a million of his dollars in order to keep from getting killed. He had a situation similar to what happened in the movie, except it didn't happen with an airplane. It happened with a fishing boat. Mm. Uh, there is no band. They put together the band themselves, all right, for the for the film. It didn't do for him what he wanted. He wasn't able to get a recording contract out of it. He did later marry, I believe she was the... Uh, of Miss Holland or something. Mm-hmm. All right. Um, and then uh, he died in 81. I think he was around 26. How he died, it's not sure. Albert Goldman, the way Albert Goldman talks, you could believe that it was he was murdered by the gangsters. Mm-hmm. However, since it's, uh, it's not recorded in the obituary exactly how he died, it suggests that he either died of either an overdose or he died of uh, pneumonia or complications due to his drug use. That's the best. It sounds like sounds like HIV, to be honest. Well, that's we're, all- and we're talking about like I mean that time period. So yeah, but one uh, Warhol's diaries he suggests that Tommy died due to the needle, and and one of his associates, uh, Kowalski, suggests that he died due to uh, pneumonia. Well, both, but, both can be true. Yes. And, <laughs> the needle can give you pneumonia. Yeah. And that is the Tommy Sullivan story. So we watched Cocaine Cowboys. 
on the New Pacific Pictures video label, which is a fly-by-night video label that I was looking up. I found one other film in the collection that I have. It's a, a South African slave uh, drama called Slavers with uh, Trevor Howard, uh, Ray Milland, Cameron Mitchell, and Brett Eklund. And um, uh, actually, I've always wanted to see this movie. I remember when it came out. It came out in the lower half of a double feature. But I want to check. Well, we'll check it out one, yeah. one of these days. Uh, that's the only new Pacific Pictures other film that I found in the collection. Not to say we don't have others, but um, they specialized like Cocaine Cowboys in um, a bunch of either public domain movies or movies that kind of fall fell into a, a never never land that a bunch of other outfits released so they also released uh, uh ride in the whirlwind monty hellman's western mm-hmm. uh the uh Ready strode mm-hmm. western the gatling gun the the italian women in prison movie the big bust out mm-hmm. and uh the horror title uh, three on a meat hook those are some of the other uh, new pacific pictures uh films however i will give new pacific pictures um a shout out while the Box is completely anonymous, has no pictures of the actors on it, just a picture of the Roxy, all right, uh, a, a weird night vision picture of the Roxy on uh, Hollywood Boulevard, as if that has anything yeah, to do with- Yeah, which makes absolutely no sense. Has, <laughs> yeah, it has nothing to do with the movie. No pictures of Jack Palance, no pictures of anything, especially for a movie that actually has a really great one sheet. But you know what? The film is obviously made in, 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 in uh, uh, SP. It has that nice, heavy- kind of SP kind of uh, uh, heft to it. It was a really surprisingly good transfer from what looked like a very good uh, 35 millimeter print. Yeah. I mean, a really unblemished 35 yeah, millimeter looked, print. It was a very nice looking. But not, there. but also, but enjoyably not mint either. All right. Yeah. It had seen a projector or two in its day, but, but with, with very little uh, uh, wear and tear. So it's funny. This movie is such if the rest e- of the new Pacific pictures, uh, 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 transfers are as good as Cocaine Cowboy, then way to go, company. This movie is such an East Coast Atlantic film that it's funny that it's released here by New Pacific and they've got a thing on uh, Hollywood Boulevard. Yeah, exactly. It's like they've Pacificized oh, it, a very East Coast movie. Yeah, it's, it's, <laughs> it's such a New York rock scene yeah. movie. Montauk, no yeah. less. Here you go. Oh, Here is wow. my copy, my VHS From copy. From Video Gems. Uh, video Gems. I, <laughs> I rush I did the, the show on the Video Gems. <laughs> I can't wait for us to do our have our first Video Gems uh, <laughs> tape on here. But here's my copy of Cocaine Well, wow, that's Cowboys. a really good uh, yeah. box. That's Fucking a re- bad ass, man. Okay, Straight. did this box come out after or before? What do you mean after or before? Like, of th- this box. Well, I'm sure this one probably came out a little later. Yeah, because well, it first came out on media. So it came out in media, and so then eventually, I guess, Video Gems got it, and then any fly-by-night company could get a print. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but I think it has a really cool opening sequence, like you guys said, which mm-hmm. is a little bit marred by it being repeated in <laughs> again again. Uh, Blank Generation again and again. Um, Quentin, it's interesting that you mentioned that it would play with Heat, mm-hmm. especially because uh, Elliot Goldenthal mm-hmm. did the soundtrack for this, and he also did the soundtrack for Heat. Oh, okay, that makes so sense, So yeah. it was like an interesting, he also did an interview with the vampire in Pet Cemetery. Mm-hmm. I think it's just, it's just on the yeah in revival houses and college campuses it was just an easy one they probably because they probably had a few copies laying around the uh, the uh, the film exchange house so it was very easy to pair with a Warhol centric movie actually a movie that that I got paired with a lot was that uh, uh, Edie Sedgwick documentary uh, Chow sure. Manhattan yeah Chow that's, Manhattan yes. that's where it played a lot with was like with Bad and we, Chow Manhattan we have that here in the in yeah, somewhere yeah. don't we yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. we have Chow Manhattan. And one thing 
I felt like you guys didn't really touch upon in your discussion of Cocaine Cowboys was the strange, I'm going to just say, fetishistic homoeroticness of the film. And I don't know if either of you picked up on it. I don't, think I, just... I don't think I did. We've seen, we so, were... many, we've seen so many homoerotic yeah. movies. We were cuddling, <laughs> while, uh, we were cuddling while watching that, it. So. Uh, uh, <laughs> Cocaine Cowboys didn't, didn't break a surface compared to all this shit we've been watching lately. I just think, yeah, I think it's really, really fascinating because the, the drug dealers, their nicknames for each other are Daddy-O and Baby. Mm-hmm. Just call me Baby. Yeah. yeah. And it's like this interesting strange... Well, one of my favorite lines in the whole yeah. thing is uh, the drug dealer t- <laughs> tells Jack Fallon, just call me Baby. Well, okay, if you insist. Baby. (laughs) (laughs) And beyond that, the funniest scene for me in the movie is the baby powder sex scene. Mm -hmm. When the Mm -hmm. assistant houseboy and the maid Mm -hmm. are kind of romping around. Mm -hmm. And she's like, what do you want me to do? And he's like, get the baby powder. And, and she, the maid is Susanna Love. That's, yeah. that's, that's Uli Lamel's wife. Yeah, yeah. Uli Lamel's yeah. wife. But who's in almost all of his movies, if yeah, yeah. not all of oh, his for, movies. Oh, for a while. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that <laughs> scene just made no sense to me whatsoever. Uh-huh. It was like a strange, fetishistic thing that just kind of came out of nowhere. Really mm-hmm. fun and interesting, but... Okay, what is, okay, what is, okay uh, you heard my fascination for uh, Tommy Sullivan. What was your take on Tommy Sullivan? You know... I liked the music in the movie, mm-hmm. but I wasn't so captivated by him. Yeah. I actually enjoyed the music in this movie more than Blank Generation. Mm, yeah. But I wasn't so captivated by his character and his story. I think mm-hmm. the scene on when he's on the horse at the very end and he yeah. kind of like is calling the guy out, but he's mm-hmm. wrong. Mm-hmm. That's the most interesting moment that he has for me. Yeah. But other than that, I kind of was more interested, actually, in, like, the houseboy assistant and the maid. Oh, you were? Okay. I was more... And also... Well, then you're in luck because they they end up taking over the third act. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. And also, (laughs) I liked the Asian uh, chef who I felt was a little underutilized. Yeah, yeah, I agree about that. Yeah, he was a cool character. Yeah. And also, it's definitely... This movie is way more interesting knowing the backstory that Quentin and Roger just talked about. When I did (laughs) not know this backstory, it was a little bit of a snooze fest for me. Mm -hmm. But hearing that this is, like, an actual based on true events, based on someone's actual life that they did these things, mm-hmm. that makes me go, huh, I wish I would have paid a little bit more attention to those aspects of the movie. Okay. So I think this movie is definitely something that could have a rewatch mm-hmm. from me. Yeah, you would re- you'd revisit and it. And reappreciate yeah. it. And you watched a couple of our uh, background films uh, as far as Uli Lamel. Yes, and actually I was aware of Uli Lamel. Because Uli Lamel has the ninth lowest rated movie on Letterboxd. <laughs> and so I was aware of Uli Lamel. Which, which one? <laughs> uh, it's one of his newer movies. Oh, and b- b- oh one of his newer Daniel, movies. Daniel, okay, I always mix up either it's Daniel the Magician or Daniel the Wizard. I think it's Daniel the Magician. I think it's Daniel the Magician, but yeah. apparently that movie is notorious and people hate Uli Lamel. Oh, for they it. hate him. But they hate him. And I was like, God, this guy, he must be terrible. And then I watched Cooking Cowboys. I'm like, okay, he's not that bad. Mm-hmm. And then I watched The Boogeyman. I'm like, okay, I really like the boogeyman. Mm-hmm. I actually really, and I know that might not be the, the case in the whole room right now, <laughs> but I really like the boogeyman. I thought it had style mm-hmm. and I thought it was fun. Well, I was, I, here's the deal about the boogeyman is I didn't see it when it came out. I remember when it came out. I think it was actually seeing John Carradine so high in the credits. I like, well, that's never a good sign, even though I like John Carradine. Actually, he's one of my more favorite things in the movie, especially the fact that he has a real role. He actually, he's serious in the film. He's actually, it's actually nice for him to commit to playing a real role yeah. in a movie, not just a, a, a goofy cameo. All they're able to do is put him in a chair, but yeah, for no, but <laughs> it's he, always the same chair. But he's serious, though. He's giving oh, yeah. a serious performance. He's yeah. playing a serious character that has something to do with the movie. He's not being yeah. uh, paraded as a, a grotesquery. Uh I didn't see it. Then Uli Lamel became infamous. And so I was like, wow, I don't want to see. Then I ended up picking up a print 
a 35 millimeter print of uh, Boogeyman four or five years ago. And when I picked up the print, I go, well, you know, I got a print now. Might as well give it a watch. And I watched it. and I was like, oh, this that wasn't bad. That was actually pretty good. Now, when we watched it together again, it was far lesser the second time around for me. You know, I yeah, uh, I mean, I even thought I kicked the evening in the in the nuts a little bit. My, yeah, <laughs> my, my problem with the film is that it didn't follow its own rules. It didn't follow any rules. Mm-hmm. Like usually if there's like a, a kind of horror phenomenon type thing, there's some kind of rules to follow. Mm-hmm. And they just didn't. It's just everything. It was, it's well, it's look, based I will on give, a haunted mirror. I will, give, and, I will give this. I will give this. The first 15 minutes made me think it was going to be a better movie because the first 15 minutes is the stuff that's the most like Halloween. Oh, yeah. Completely. And it actually follows pretty good Halloween. And there's even an interesting aspect to it that it's a devil possession movie, but it's built around these random killings. So it has the structure of a slasher film, yeah. even though it's a devil possession movie. Yeah. I was, I think I was more in the same boat you were in when I watched the print. It didn't hold up a second time for me. You know, I think those last like 15, 20 minutes of it, though, are really super cool. And the thing I have Uh, to say about the boogeyman, I mean, Roger might agree with me on this. I think, okay, so for me, it's like the slasher meets the exorcist. Yeah. I think it has some really cool killing scenes that Mm -hmm. you don't see. We see a lot of slasher movies where it's just like slasher. Yeah, yeah. But like this, for example, boogeyman had the what I call the knife kiss yeah, scene yeah. Uh, in the car uh-huh. when it's like one dies and the knife goes through and then the other one moves forward to kiss and they're yeah. stuck in that eternal kiss. Yeah. And I thought, man, that's so cool. Cause their friends are just like, Oh God, mm. these two, they're always yeah, making right. out yeah. like get out of here. Like, ah, oh. yeah. but I like that. I like, the well, I like that. I like the, I like the scissor kill. The, I think the scissor I mean, kill the is scissor the, kills. I, cool. The knife kiss. Kills listen, cool. that yeah. mirror in the eye bit, which was part of the commercial when, yeah, it, yeah, yeah. when uh-huh. it originally played part of the trailer, when it was mm-hmm. on TV, it was that, and that was what got, what got me excited when the movie first came out with that, like that crazy well, mirror. Even the, the whole eye concept of, of of a mirror possessed, even though it actually becomes interesting who's possessing the mirror, that's interesting. But even the whole idea of a mirror possessed and the and pieces break up, okay, I think that stopped me from seeing it when it first came out in the first thing. That, that, yeah. That sounds bad. Yeah. It's, it's, and it's actually not as bad as it sounds. <laughs> <laughs> And I will say one thing about Boogeyman is uh, one of my favorite critics that me and Roger, have, uh, I've introduced to Roger, is uh, a, a critic from the uh, late 70s, early 80s named Jim Shelton. He used oh, yeah. to write for the Porno Rag, yeah. uh, the Hollywood Press. The only film we've mentioned that he actually did a review for is uh, The Boogeyman. And so I'm going to read not his review, but his reviews are usually consist of the plot line of the movie. So there's a little bit of a, a opinion at the beginning and a little bit of opinion at the end. So... Uh, So this is from the November uh, 28, 1980 uh, edition of Hollywood Press. Uh, Jim Sheldon's review for The Boogeyman. The Boogeyman has exorcist-like possession and music and end titles. (laughs) An Amityville-looking house. Yeah, absolutely. Before Amityville, right? Yes. uh And other regurgitated cliches in a first American film from German semi-underground Uli Lamel. So he (laughs) describes the uh, plot line, then he ends... The obviously surreal duelings of Lamel, who also wrote and produced, are not enhanced by diluted lensing, mediocre acting, and the mirthful appearance by John Carradine in a straight role as a shrink. Don't pick this boogie. (laughs) D (laughs) minus. For anyone that's interested in Boogeyman, it's available on VHS, DVD, Mm. and Amazon to rent. And you guys are in luck because Coking Cowboys is available for free on YouTube. 
Well, I think that wraps it up for our very first episode of the Video Archives podcast. I want to thank my co-host, Roger Avery. I want to thank the lovely Gala Avery, our uh, uh, researcher, reporter on the beat and announcer. Hey, Quentin, I'm so happy to be back at Video Archives. Thanks for this. Oh, it's my pleasure. It's my pleasure. <laughs> be kind, rewind. I'll talk to you guys later. Bye-bye. Dream old times and spaces. The Video Archives podcast is hosted by Quentin Tarantino and Roger Avery and produced by Josh Richmond and Gala Avery. Our engineer is Devin Torrey Bryant, and our executive producers are Colin Anderson and Natalie Muella. This episode featured additional production by Raven Goldston. Find out more about the show by heading to videoarchivespodcast.com. Thanks for